Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor or a guest, welcome. Uh, my name is Penny, and I am the pastor here at Christ the King. That was Frank, one of our ruling elders who is helping us in liturgy this morning. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, um, welcome. We're happy that you're here, and uh, I would encourage you to take a moment uh, after the service and uh, be greeted. Please come introduce yourself to me. I would love to meet you. I'd love to extend a welcome to you. Uh, we are happy that you're here. Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of service. It's printed there. Um, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, it's important for us to know and to be aware of the way in which the book is structured. Remember, this is a letter that Paul has written to the church at Ephesus and to the surrounding churches in that area. And so it, it's actually not divided by chapter and verse, right? Originally, it was just this letter given to him. But over time, the, the church is, for our sake, for our help, is divided up. And the way that it gets divided up frequently is uh, chapters 1 through 3 are primarily concerned with who we are as God's people. It's about our identity, what God has done to us. And so we've heard already about how God has loved us before the foundations of the world, how God's grace through Christ has been showered upon us, how he has sealed us with his spirit and how we are united to Christ and unite to one another. That these are the things that are true about us. That's chapters one through three. Well, chapters four through six primarily, not exclusively, but primarily focus on what we do now in light of what is true. What are the practical implications for this? And so we're going to hear about families and work and all these sorts of things, the, the body of Christ in the coming weeks. So there is what is true and then what to do. And before Paul makes this turn, at the center of his book is a prayer. Before Paul moves from who we are in Christ, our identity in God, to what we are to do in light of who we are, he prays. He prays for the Ephesian church, and he prays for us. And that's what we have this morning, this wonderful prayer from Paul, beginning in verse 14. He writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he, might grant, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I imagine that many of you are familiar with the story of Eric Liddell, or Lydell, or Little. I'm, I'm not really sure how you pronounce it, but we'll, we'll say Liddell. Um, Eric Liddell was a famous sprinter, Scottish sprinter. Uh, who competed at the Paris Olympic Games in 1924. 
He kind of came out of nowhere. That was one of the amazing things about his story. His story actually continues uh, beyond just running. He became a missionary to China and died in a concentration camp, an internment camp in inland China years after he raced in the Olympics. Well, Eric Liddell actually is, is well-known. Probably you know him best because he is the, the character that the movie Chariots of Fire revolves around. Have, have you all seen that movie? Yeah, and so you know there's that wonderful line where he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What a wonderful and thoroughly biblical understanding of what we experience when we are doing God's will. That whether it is us running or whether it is going to the office or whether it is caring for our children or loving our neighbor, that, that we experience God's pleasure in that. It's such a wonderful line. That, that at the very heart of who he was, was God. And experiencing God's pleasure and will for him. That's why we love that movie, right? That's why we love his story. Now, now, if you're familiar with him, you may not be as familiar with another character from that movie. His name is Harold Abrahams. Harold was the, uh, the chief rival of Eric Liddell. He was the one who was supposed to win glory for Great Britain in the Olympics, not this upstart. And, and so he, he is this man who is the complete opposite in many ways of Liddell. Where Liddell ran for God's pleasure, Abrahams ran for his own glory. There's this scene after the 200-meter final has occurred where, uh, where Abrahams had come in second, he got the silver, and he's preparing for the 100-meter finals, right? The, the most important event of the Olympics. And there he is in the, in the room getting prepped. He's being massaged. He's on the table. He's speaking aloud, and he's thinking about this race that's about to take place, this 100 meters. And this is what he says in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. How contrary that statement is to that of Liddell's. Whereas one's whole life, heart, and desire had been gripped by the pleasure of God, this one, his whole life, his whole world, his heart had been gripped by his own glory, his own success. That's what had taken over him. His entire existence, his heart, his life was rooted in making himself great. Personal glory had gripped his heart. What has gripped yours? What has captured your imagination? What has rooted and grounded itself into the depths of your heart, in your minds? See, every one of us has something. Every one of us has had something that has enticed our love, has appealed to our affections, has stirred our imaginations, has captured our hearts. Every single one of us. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's, maybe it's financial glory. Maybe it's intellect, the searching out of knowledge and wisdom and facts. Maybe it's our families or the thought of a family. Something has gripped you. Something has taken hold of your heart. What is that? 
James K. Smith, the uh, theologian and writer, a man whose writing has influenced my thought more than anyone else on this subject, says this, to be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. What do you love? What has captured your heart? It's not a new question for 21st century America, and it wasn't a new question for 20th century British sprinters. <laughs> it's a question that has actually been asked and has been pondered by people in every time, in every place, from the beginning of time. See, we, we are those who are going to give our hearts to something. And so what is it? See, Paul understood this. Paul understood this. He understood that the Ephesian church, that something is going to grip their heart, is going to captivate their minds. And so aware of this and acknowledging this, what does he do? He prays. He prays that their hearts would be captured by the love of Christ. In verse 14, he says, I come. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this is an interesting posture that he takes. Now, for us, we think, well, of course he kneeled, right? That's what you do when you pray. You get down on your knees and you pray. But for uh, a Jewish man at this time to get on their knees to pray was actually a very strange posture. Normally, they would remain standing. That actually when they prayed, it was a sign of, of deep and concerted prayer, of something weighty and heavy. And so when we read, actually very few times in Scripture, that someone would fall on their knees or lay prostrate before God in prayer, that it is something weighty. It is something deep. So that's what he does. He falls to his knees with this weighty prayer, with this calling out to God. And what does he pray in verse 17? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul doesn't pray that we would stop loving. Instead, he prays that our hearts would be reoriented and captured by the love of Christ. It was Augustine who hundreds of years later said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. See, Paul is praying that our hearts, our desires, our loves would be captured by the love of Christ. That that is what he prays for us. And in order for that to take place, in order for us to continue to be rooted and grounded in his love, Paul prays for other things. Not just that Christ would dwell in our hearts, but that we would be strengthened. That we would have strength in the love of Christ. Twice he prays for strength. In verse 16 he says, That according to his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And in verse 18 he says, You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. He prays for strength. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, why would Paul pray for strength? I mean, he, he's already told us that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, right? That's what we were told chapters before. He's already told us that God's grace has been showered upon us. So why does he ask that we would be strong? Well, it's true. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You've been united to Christ. But that's not all that's true about you. 
that though sin doesn't have absolute reign over your life anymore, we know all too well that there is still the residue of sin in our hearts. Right? That we still are inclined and we are constantly wrestling. So what Paul is praying that we would have strength, it's, it's a strength to resist that sin. The strength to resist that sin, and the way that we resist that sin is by being in love more and more with Christ. Okay, l- let me think about this. Let me, uh, let's think about this way. So I would imagine that, that if you're a Christian here this morning, you're going, well, duh. <laughs> of course I'm supposed to love Jesus more than I love sin, right? Like anybody walk in and go, you know what? I think I'm just going to love sin more today, right? No, you don't say that. That's absurd, right? We know better. But I want you to think about, um, I want you to think about the last time you sinned. Maybe it was this morning, um, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it was when you were trying to corral the kids, or kids when your parents were trying to corral you. <laughs> uh, that never happens, right? Like, sin never takes place in those moments. Um, maybe it was then, or maybe it was last night or yesterday. Whenever it was, I want you to think about that time when you were tempted and moved towards gossip, or those evil thoughts entered your mind about that person, or you were inclined towards gluttony or towards lust. I want you to think about that time. You, you, you got it in, in your head? If you're like me, it's probably not that hard to think of. Now I want you to think about what led up to that. The thoughts that went through your head. The circumstances that occurred. Now, now I would imagine that as you were approaching that sin, as temptation was trying to seep into your heart and lead you to sin, that, that you didn't sit there and go, you know what, I think that this is probably a morally neutral act that I'm about to engage in. Anybody? No, of course not. We knew it was sin. So why did we do it? Because you loved it. That's why you did it. Because for a second, and maybe just for a moment, you loved that sin more than you love Jesus. That's why we do it. Because just for a second, maybe, we wanted that sin more than we wanted Christ. That's why Paul would pray that we would be strong in the love of Christ. Because we are like what C.S. Lewis said, in the weight of glory, He writes that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Maybe I could amend C.S. Lewis if that is allowed and say we are far too easily loved. We far too easily love. We love these things that will not lead us to joy and to infinite glory. We, we love these things that pale in comparison to the love of Christ. And so that is why we need to be strong. Not to be strong in our own being, but to be strong in the love of Christ. To be captured and infatuated with his love so that all those other false loves would pale in comparison. They would fade away need the strength to resist. 
that's not all that Paul is asking for. We also need the strength to grasp, to take hold of this love. It's what he asked for in verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, to comprehend it. Other versions say that we grasp it, we take hold of it, that we would know this love. That as we hold on to it, there would be no room in our hearts for anything else. That all those things like lust, money, and glory, and acclaim, that all those things, that they would not even compare to the love of Christ. That we would take hold of it. See, friends, when when we are infatuated with the love of Christ, when we grasp it, when we hold on to it, when we are strengthened to comprehend it, when we cling to his grace, all our attempts for his favor, they fade away. When we are infatuated in our hearts and hear that we are his children, all those thoughts that we are left alone, they are no more. We can rest that we are accepted, that, that all those false loves have no place to take root. They become rootless in our hearts because the love of Christ has taken root there. That we would be strengthened. That's what Paul prays. That we would be strong in the love of Christ, but not just that we would be strong, but that we would know. That we would have the knowledge of the love of Christ as well. Verses 18 and 19, Paul writes this, you may have strength to comprehend With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, did you hear that? (laughs) The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's saying that you would know that which surpasses knowledge. How is that possible? Right? That is both amazing and incomprehensible at the same time. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Okay, well, what I think Paul is trying to get at here is, is this idea that there is knowing and then there is knowing. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all know the difference. That there is to know something rationally, cognitively, but then there is a way of knowing it experientially. To know it with our hearts. Jonathan Edwards, who is, who is absolutely no intellectual slouch, in the 1800s, he was writing and he was preaching and he said in his sermon, a divine and supernatural light, which is is very thin, you can go and read it. He said, he that is spiritually enlightened does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. Okay, did you hear what he said? He said there is this rational knowing, this awareness, but that there is actually a deeper knowing, that that we don't merely know God with our intellect, with our knowledge, right? We do, he says, we don't merely know him that way, but we know him also experientially. There is a sense that we experience his holiness, his goodness, his beauty. So Edwards then talks about honey. He says, you can know that honey is sweet. I can tell you that. And you can believe me. I'm a trustworthy person. Trust me, honey is sweet. And you could go, you know, now, and you could see all the chemical makeups of honey, right? We could go and we could see, oh, yeah, I could see how these chemicals align together and they work together and this would be sweet. So you can know it cognitively, intellectually, rationally. 
But as soon as it hits your tongue and is on your lips, you know it in a whole new way, don't you? How you know what sweetness is. How you know what goodness is. That there is knowing and then there is knowing. I think this is why the psalmist says not know that, the, that God is good, but he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just that we would know this rationally, but we know it experientially. That is what Paul is getting at here, that we would have knowledge of the love of Christ, that we would know this love of Jesus that is an incomprehensible knowing. It makes me think of, of little kids, little infants, when they're so infatuated with their mom and they come up and what do they say? They say, mommy, I love you so much. I love you this much, right? And they try and stretch and they reach as far as they can and they bow out their little chest so they can spread their hands even farther. I love you this much, right? Why are they doing that? Because they don't know how to, they don't know how to say what they're comprehending, right? There are not words to express the emotion that they're feeling and so they're trying to show it as fully as they can. And as they get older and their vocabularies start to grow, what do they start doing? They realize, oh, my, my wingspan's actually kind of small, right? I love you this much, right? And so they start using words that express themselves more, right? I love you a hundred times, Daddy. I love you a thousand times. And, or my kids, they say Google, right? And Googleplex. I don't know how big of a number that is, right? Like, how big is Google? It, it's a massive number. I don't know the zeros. And that's the point. It's incomprehensible. We don't even have words to describe the emotion and the experience that we are having. And so we have to come up with something so absurd that it reveals that our words are simply approximations of the emotions and the experiences that we are having. That is to know the knowledge, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's this deeper sense of knowing. It's this deeper experience of knowing. To know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ, the breadth of his love. A love that is wide enough to accept and to bring in peoples from every nation and every peoples and every time and every tongue. That is how broad his love is. The, the length of Christ's love that it began before the foundations of the world and it extends into eternity. To know the depth of his love that he would take on our sins and enter the grave and succumb to death, that he would actually descend into death to take our sins upon us, the depth of his love, but to know the height of his love, that he raises us up with him when he rose again, when he erupted from the grave, and he rose victorious over it, that he raised us with him into the heavenly places. The love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. I mean, could you have, can you even imagine that? I mean, the, we wouldn't have even known to have asked. And yet that is what God showers us with. This love that surpasses all knowledge that is inexhaustible. That is the love that he shows for us, a love that we could not have imagined but comes from the one who is able to do far more abundantly, more than we could ask or think. We would know the love of Christ and we would be strengthened 
with the love of Christ, that we would know the love of Christ. But finally, Paul prays that we would be filled with the love of Christ. He prays for filling. Verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a strange comment. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. Okay, so, so Paul is like totally trying to bend our minds in this passage, right? Knowledge that surpasses knowledge, the fullness of God indwelling his people. Like, how does that happen? God, right? God indwelling us, the fullness of God to inhabit God's people. What does this mean? Well, well, one question we should be asking is, why is Paul continuing to ask for this if we already know this has happened? Because the Spirit already indwells us, right? That's what he told us chapters before. So why does he keep praying? What does he mean? Well, Colossians 1 actually is very helpful. Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. There, Paul is writing, and we're told that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Colossians 2, we're told that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So if we want to see what it looks like that the fullness of God dwells in a human being, we look at Jesus. Okay, so what does it mean then for it to dwell in us? I think what it means, at the very least, is that as Christ dwells in our hearts, as we are rooted and grounded in his love, that from the inside out, we are actually becoming more and more like Christ that we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Not, not in that we are, being, uh, we are becoming God, right? We are not deified. That, that's not what Paul is saying here, right? So for, for the no heresy, no deification, okay? That's not what's going on. No, what he's saying is that as Jesus inhabits our hearts, as his love takes root in our hearts, as the fullness of God dwells within us, that we actually start to look more and more like him in the sense that, that we have no place for sin in our lives anymore, that we pursue what is true and good, that we put aside those lusts and those desires that we had before, those false loves, and we only pursue what is right, what is beautiful, what is lovely. That that's what it means, that we actually become more and more like Christ, this new way of living, this living as Christ lived. Now, this, this is what I think he means when he says that we are filled with the fullness of God, that God inhabits us in such a way that there is only room for what is good, for what God says is right. But in order to be filled, that means that something has to go. There's an expulsion. Think about it this way. Um, when someone comes to work on your house, like to work on your pipes, you've got uh, something stuck in the sink or, or whatever. What do they do? The, the plumber shuts off the water, right? They do the work. Hopefully it's just for an hour, maybe two, maybe not weeks, right? That, that would be bad. Eventually he, he unclogs the problem. He replaces the flange. or I, I don't know what a flange is, but he does something, <laughs> right? He does something. He says it's working, Right? He turns the water back on, and you go to your kitchen faucet, and you turn it on, and what happens? Spluttering and spurting and all these terrible sounds, and the kids are running in wondering what's happening because it sounds like the pipes are demon-possessed, right? Because they're going crazy, and they're shaking. What, what's going on? What's getting pushed out? Air. Because the water, as the pipes are being filled with water, something has to go. 
the water and the air both can't be in the pipes at the same time, right? If there's air, that means there's no water. But as the water is filling up those pipes, what happens? The air gets pushed out. And the same is true for us. You see, as Christ takes on our hearts, as he is rooted and grounded in our hearts, as his love fills us more and more, as we are enticed in our minds and infatuated more and more with him, there is no room for sin. There's no room. That as Jesus' love takes root in our hearts, then those sins, those other loves become rootless. They get yanked up and thrown away. They're expulsed. That's what it means. That as the fullness of God indwells us, that those things that are not of God would be no more. That they would be put aside. That we would put them away. That they would be sent out. Can you imagine that? Sinless life. Those thoughts that that you were thinking about before, that that sin that you have been struggling with, that sin that came to mind that you imagined not just a few minutes ago, can you imagine being done with that forever? Can you imagine that? You know what, y'all? I can't. Because there hasn't been a single day in my life where that has been my experience. I can't fully comprehend what it would be like for Christ. Christ's love to fully inhabit my heart so that there would be no room for anything else. I can't even imagine it. I can't fully comprehend it. But you know what? I don't have to. Because God has. And he has said that it has and it is happening. The amazing thing is that word filled in the Greek, in the the original tense, it's a passive. And so what that means is that it is done to you. I don't fill myself. God fills me. You don't fill yourself. God fills you. It is done to you. We don't have to imagine. We don't have to be able to comprehend it because the one who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or think, he does it. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with all this? What are we supposed to make of this prayer? Like, how do we respond to this? I mean, Paul has prayed and asked for things so lofty and so grand. How are we supposed to respond? What are we to do now that Christ dwells richly in our hearts, that we begin to grasp the depth and width and height and length of his love, that we're filled full? What do we do? There's a lot of things that we do. We put off sin, we say no to ungodliness, we say yes to righteousness, we pursue what is true, we love our... There's all sorts of things, but at the very foundation, we respond with praise. We respond with worship. And that's what Paul did. That at the end of his prayer, he erupts in doxology. So I imagine... I imagine that as Paul was writing in his jail cell to the Ephesian church, as he was filling up parchment, as he was thinking about these amazing ideas, as he was considering the incredible love of Christ, that I could imagine that his heart probably started to race with excitement. 
that he started to become overwhelmed with what he was writing. I could imagine that as he's writing, like his hand can't keep up with the thoughts running through his head. And he finally gets the last period down and he can't help but explode in worship. What he does. And that's what we do. We sing with our hearts that have been rooted in Christ's love. We rejoice with our minds that comprehend Christ's care. We worship with our souls full of Christ's grace. We say with the apostle, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you, and we do worship you, and we say yes and amen, that we need your love to take root in our hearts, to control us, to fill us, to enlighten our minds to a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. God, we are in need of you, and so we praise you, and we worship you, because what we are in need of you have given in your Son, our Lord Jesus. Turn our hearts to thanksgiving and fill our lips with praise at what you have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our God and our King, the lover of our souls, and all God's people said together,